Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I have the passage for you there in the bulletin as well as an outline. We're in that second part of Ephesians where Paul just pastorally just really pours on the direction for the people of God. Those who he has described in the first three chapters as those who are now in union with Jesus Christ by faith, by God's sovereign grace, they have, we have, been placed in union with Christ for salvation. We're, we're secure in that. And it's in that security that was celebrated over three chapters that Paul can go honestly to the congregation at Ephesus and to us these years later and speak forthrightly about what it would look like for us to now have this new identity. We, our identity is Jesus now. It's not the things we do, our vocation, our uh, something on the human level that people would note that we are, a husband, a father, or whatever it may be, a, a mom, a sister, you name the titles and identities we have. Those may be true, but they're down the line from who we are now in Christ. And so we put off the old that matches with our dead identity before we knew Christ, and we put on that which is new because God's given us the ability to do it. We'd have no capacity for it if God had not made us alive with Christ. Then throughout life, it's still a challenge and a struggle. There's no settled fight against sin this side of glory. So we know that. We recognize that. All of that's honest before us, pastor to congregation, as Paul writes to Ephesus, and as I preach this to you today. This is about being able in Christ to be confronted with the things that we struggle with and the world around us struggles with, but doesn't have capacity because they're still in darkness. Paul uses a metaphor that he picks up throughout the chapter, and it's walking. It's your Christian walk. It's how you live your life, how you order your days. What are your habits through the day? What does your life look like? That's your Christian walk, as we might call it. First, in the first couple verses, Paul talks about walking in grace and love. The grace that God has shown us in Christ and the love he's shown us in Christ, we should express that to one another. So it's with the demeanor of graciousness and love that he comes at this very difficult next topic. A couple topics intertwine. But remember the basis is graciousness and love towards one another. And the way I speak, I hope it comes across that way also. Yet there's urgency in the message the pastor Paul writes here, and as your pastor says to you, because of how critical um, these activities impact, how critical they are to the impact of our life in the way they thwart our walk when they're not viewed as God views them. So please hear as I read God's word, Ephesians 5, I'll read verse 3 down to verse 14, where the metaphor now is walking in light, as you will see. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covet covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. 
and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, it is a dark world with darkened understanding abounding. I pray for your Holy Spirit to give us help to understand your word and to apply its light to our circumstances and experiences. We acknowledge that our union with Jesus is our true identity now. We are new creatures. We also know, when we're honest, of our proneness to listen to the voices of popularity or culture more than we follow the teaching of your word. We thank you for our security in Christ, proclaimed by the gospel, the grace and love that you've shown us in Christ that we can show to one another. And I ask you to give us the ability to then follow your direction. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So for the next 10 days straight, pausing only for Sunday, I will get up at around 4.30 a.m. to go hunting. Using only moonlight if I can, I will walk to a tree stand location somewhere in the middle of the woods at least an hour before sunrise and wait. And I don't care about any of the judgment that you're pouring out upon me right now for making this choice to do this thing. I'll wait for the light so I can see what's moving. If the sky is cloudy and you, the stars aren't, or the moon isn't lighting things up enough, then I'll just sit there while it's pitch black and wait till I can start seeing something. Everything is invisible until there is light brought to bear. If it stays dark, I can't see and I can't discern. I may try to feel my way around and trust in what senses I have, but they're so limited and messed up, I'm likely to make a mistake, especially if I'm sitting 15 feet up. So I'm best to just sit and wait for the light. When it starts to get light, I can start to make things out in the forest. It's slight at first, but eventually I can discern if something's a tree stump or if it's a rock. Your eyes and your mind constantly play tricks on you when you're in low light conditions. You think you're seeing things you're not. You just cannot trust your senses without light shining. Distances are hard to judge in low light conditions. Objects hard to discern. But as the light increases, I can see eventually if movement is actually the wind blowing a branch and disturbing some leaves, or if it's an animal moving through the woods. As the light intensifies, instead of seeing 20 yards out or 40 yards out, I can see 40 and 50 and 100. Things that are obvious in the light can be completely invisible when it's dark. You know, this is a great description of the Christian life, and as you grow in maturity, you go from darkness where all you have are your senses, and your senses are messed up and they play tricks on you, you can't trust them. But when you come to Christ, light shines, and you can start to now see clearly. Now, it may be true we're transferred instantaneously, but our experience in being able to see things through the light of Christ, that takes time. That's part of why we're here. That's part of why we partake of the means of God's grace to keep growing so we can see clearly as God wants us to see. But make no mistake, we were in darkness 
will still try to move and people who are in darkness will move around and try to find their way, but they'll be unsuccessful. They'll stumble along, often hurt themselves. That's the way of the fallen world. But now that light shined upon it in Christ, we can start to see these pitfalls and recognize God's design, God's intention, God's direction of things. Verse 8 in our passage really gives us a bit of a theme to consider as we look at what Paul says. In verse 8, for at one time you were darkness. Notice it doesn't say you were in darkness. It says you were darkness. That's just the description of someone who's immobilized by their lack of ability to see. For at one time you were darkness, but now, Christians in Ephesus, Christians here, you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Remember, we put off and then put on. Now it's, we can, we're blind, but now we can see. Walk according to what we can see. What can we see? That which God shines his light upon. In Christ, we have light. Without Christ, we're sitting in a tree stand blind. Life before Christ was a dark walk. Now, someone who's in that darkness doesn't recognize that necessarily. They think they're doing their best in their checking their senses. They're checking with other people in the dark and saying, do you feel the same way I do? I feel the same. Oh, we have five people that feel that way. Must be right. And that's how people move around in the darkness. But for the believer now, Christ shines a light on it. And oftentimes, we'll recognize our feelings in the light. They weren't trustworthy. They're not right. They're still there, but they're not right. And it could be all manner of areas that this applies to. So we need this direction that God provides. The world is largely in a state of darkness, and its inhabitants see darkly, or not at all, they're blind. And so there's a dependence upon light being shined. In believers, it starts with us. It starts, first of all, though, personally, being honest about our own propensities to act out in these dark ways. And then it's through the witness and the transformation of the church itself that it exposes darkness around us. Remember earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul is very blunt about the state of people who are not in Christ. And this is helpful for us to remember as we walk through this. It helps us be more gracious about how we teach these things. Paul is very pointed to believers who profess faith in Christ. He's not looking up and telling everyone else out there that you've got to be like a Christian. That's impossible, except they are Christians. So, Ephesians 4, Paul says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? In the futility of their minds, uh, they pursue futile ways, following their senses, that ends up in futility. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So, as a preface, when we want to discover how to handle things like sexuality or material things or the things that are in our in our immediate scope all the time, covetousness and sexual immorality are the things mentioned here. We don't go to people who are darkened to find out how to get through that right. That's not where we go for the answers or the categories or the understandings. Remember, they're, they're blindly flailing around trying to figure out what it is they should do and coming up by some consensus. That's not how God calls believers to live. We are called to shine the light of Christ on the lusts of the flesh and their outcomes. And we do this for the sake of everyone, mostly for the glory of God to be known, but personally, for us to walk in a way that is fruitful, that's according to God's design. 
Paul goes straight after two very sensitive issues in Ephesus, the issue of sexual immorality and the issue of covetousness. Now, they go together. Commentators will point out that they're wrapped together. That's true. I would like to take them apart a little and consider them both, and you'll see how they relate. I think you'll follow along very easily when you see the apostles' logic here. But these are strong pulls in any society, in any era, any age. It's not different now than it was in Ephesus. But remember Ephesus in its situation. It was a city that was a pagan city with a temple to Diana. It had institutional prostitution tied up in that temple. Um, There were all manner of kind of unrighteousness and, and immorality that went on all across the spectrum. I mean, anything you could figure out and find today, it was there. Today it's all on the internet, mostly, but there it was actually lived out in Ephesus. So when people came to Christ, they started to meet as a church, they're growing in grace, there still was difficulty in understanding how to detach from the life they were once living. It's right, right in their backdrop. And so Paul writes with that mindset to Christians, recognizing some will be in their midst who really have to be challenged about whether they are in their midst. Do they really trust Christ? And then the, those who do, who still struggle with those aspects of the life around them, but they're struggling and they need assurance and they need to recognize that they have to engage in that struggle, especially in these two areas. Because these are sins that grow out of a heart that wants to replace God with something that's temporarily satisfying. I want to go do this, have this pleasure, and this is what I'll think about now. I won't think about tomorrow, this is what I do now. And you pursue that on and on, sensuality. Or it could be covetousness for stuff. Like I want to pursue uh, to uh, accumulate things. I really want what that person has. I want more of that. I want to build up in and attain more, so I work hard now. And both things take our eyes off of eternity and put them on the temporary, and that's where we lose so much eternally. That's the point. Especially uh, in a culture that needs the message of the gospel, it's important for the church to be engaged in this process of sanctification where we grow and put the light of Jesus on these desires we have or these actions we might take. And it's honest and open about our being sinners and needing God to redeem us and then calling other people to recognize the freedom that comes there. There's not freedom in pursuing the things. That's the ironic, uh, the ironic truth of the matter. You are not freer doing whatever you feel like doing. That's slavery, actually. The freedom comes from what we have in Christ and the clarity about how we should handle sex and stuff. That's what we're talking about here as uncomfortable as it may be. But it really ought not to be for believers. We should be able to talk about this openly, and I'm sure you'll be able to today with your children. So have a good talk when you get home and continue to have this talk, and I hope you already are. Notice first that Paul shines the light of Christ, or wants us to shine the light of Christ on the issue of sexuality or sexual immorality, as he puts it, verse 3 down to verse 5. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. I'll come back to covetousness in the second point, but for now we'll focus a little bit on what he means by not having sexual immorality be named among you. He's saying to the church that your identity is with Christ. That's what he's been building up. So someone shouldn't walk by the church of Christ and say that's a church where they do X, Y, Z and fill in whatever unrighteous thing it is. You're named by those things. You're known by those things. Not by the gospel, not by your being called out to worship God, but by these activities. And so let not sexual immorality or covetousness be named among you. They should not be identifying features of who you are as the people of God. So we have to shine the light on this matter of sexual immorality and covetousness in a moment. 
And look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So our identity in Christ should be manifested by the way we're thankful to God, where we find our contentment in him. That's what thankfulness does. It provides for a declaration of our dependence upon God. Whereas the other things are saying, I need to depend on these to get my satisfaction. There's a big difference. Now, the reason why I separate, separate out covetousness a bit here is because in other epistles, Paul writes something similar. He brings both of these up, the issue of sexual immorality and covetousness. Listen to what he says in Colossians, to the Colossians. He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So you can see these are two themes the apostle thinks are very important for Christians because we deal with them on a regular basis. In Galatians 5, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Seems to continually put those things together. It's true. Sexual impurity could be idolatry, and covetousness could be about getting, like David, wanting Bathsheba, both a sexual uh, sin as well as coveting. So they are wrapped together, but we can also see how they're the two biggest things we probably face as distractions, sin distractions that come our way, that the culture will say are okay. You're okay following that. Even promote it. In Corinthians, the church that probably had the most pressure from the outside when it came to a, a culture that was, was wicked. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he starts to pinpoint, even unpack what se- sexual immorality looks like. He says to the Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, people identified in these sins. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. And then he says, it's some, such some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, this is a common theme from Paul. We want to consider it that way. It's not a one-off. It's not one verse off on the side, uh, a fringe doctrine, if you will. These are critical components uh, to our Christian walk. People in union with Jesus are to shine the light of Christ, first on ourselves, to examine that things we may be doing or partaking of, shine the light here and then to the community and then wider, the church community and then wider especially in the realm of sexuality and sexual practice, as much of a discussion as it is today. Now, rather than list all the possible forms of sexual immorality, because there are many, this is a very general word. It comes from the word pornea, and you can, you can see what that word is the root for. Any sexual practice, it's very, very easy to identify. Any sexual practice that happens outside of the confines of the marital relationship qualify for sexual immorality. They're, they're not... Sexual practice outside of marriage is not meant. It's not by design. It's not what God calls it for or puts it into place for. It was intended by God's design to be experienced within the confines of the marital relationship. And as the Bible describes, the marital relationship is between a husband and a wife. Genesis gives us the base model for the marital relationship. It's a man and a woman. That's what marriage is. It doesn't matter who and what court, in what office, in what place of authority on earth says something else is marriage. It's not. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and this is what God has called in Genesis. In Ephesians, we'll get to this portion of Ephesians pretty soon, it further expounds upon the marriage relationship and how that 
mirrors what Christ has done in saving us. So the arena or the sphere for sexual expression is marriage. Rather than identifying every form of immorality, you can recognize for yourself what it would be if it's outside of the marital relationship. And by the way, it's a struggle for everybody. Nobody gets over the struggle. Struggling with it is not the same as giving yourself and being labeled as whatever your immorality may be. That's another level. It's, it's like this. If you get caught in a web, a huge web of a, ma- a massive spider, you don't just sit there. You move around, wriggle around, and try to get yourself out. That's the Christian life. We get caught sometimes in sins, all manners of sins. And we wriggle and get out. And as God reminds us again of his gospel and by his grace frees us from it, we gain freedom. Now, that's different from someone who just sees a pool and jumps in and jumps in and just floats and just happy to be there. That's the difference. Are you struggling? That's what believers do. Or are you saying, you know what, this is how I am. Forget what it says here. I'm going to do what feels right. And thank you, everyone, for assuring me that I'm doing the right thing, following who I am. There's a difference, and it's an important difference to note. So it's all a manner of different sexual immoralities that you can imagine. But I would challenge us because I know that whenever the culture gets on one topic and the topic they like to discuss the most is is homosexual practice. And I recognize why that should be called out. The Bible does. But I'm more concerned on the larger level, quite honestly, with all the pornography that Christians watch. Let's not worry so much about the other one. We got one right under our noses half the time. Go down the list of other immoralities we have that are outside of the homosexual realm. We got plenty. God help us all, all human beings. We are way messed up and broken down in, in all fashion, and we're killing ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. We're damaging ourselves with this misuse. And it's in the church, and it's in the culture, and it's wider spread. And until we're really honest about the fullness of what God calls us to in sexual purity, we should really be careful about just picking one out and beating that drum all the time. And I got no trouble going to jail for saying anything I'm saying because it's what the Bible says. But let's focus where it really, really hits us most, probably most widespread. And when we're honest like that, that will put us in a place of humility that re-emphasizes our need for the gospel. And then we can actually talk honestly to people where they don't think we're judging them for everything because we got enough of our own stuff. There. That's the problem with original sin. It skews our affections and our desires. We can't trust any of them. We have to have God's direction. There's almost nothing that we experience natural that you can trust anymore. It's always going to God to be put under the lens of what the scripture says. And the spirit of God will help us recognize this to be true. Yes, you have twinges from time to time because we're in the image of God where we recognize something isn't right. But generally speaking, we just can't get very far with it unless God gives us aid in really seeing what it is. Because if you go to the darkened world, they're just bolstering up whatever it is and they're saying it's okay. No, a lot of people feel this way. This is how you were born. And fill in the blank, whatever it is. And so that's how it is. And if that's who you go to, that's the support you get. That's all you know. We can't rely on that. It'll kill us. God's given this gift. It's meant to be used in a certain way, and when it's used in that way, it causes reproduction, and it causes intimacy, and it's a beautiful gift God gives us. When it's used outside of those, that realm, it hurts. It's like this. I have 15 trees in my backyard, and I want to put a pool in there. I'm going to give you a chainsaw. Start it up, give you the chainsaw. Take those trees down for me, and you take them down in 10 minutes and get that spot ready. It's a beautiful instrument when it's used to do something that would take forever if you had to do it with an axe or saw it down by hand. But with a chainsaw, you take it all down immediately, and you have a place cleared, and you're ready to go. It does its job. It's beautiful when it does its job. It's effective, and it allows you to continue to progress. 
But if we're sitting at Thanksgiving and we're all ready to eat the turkey, and I give the guy at the head of the turkey the chainsaw and say he's right next to grandma and he gets the chainsaw and he's going to start cutting everybody's turkey up, what is he going to do? He's going to hurt himself and somebody else. It's not meant for that. It creates a mess. That's really what's happened in many respects culture-wide with regard to the gift that God has given in sexuality. And unfortunately, many Christians still don't have that area under the, under the shining of Jesus' light. In close connection to this first matter, we are to shine the light of Christ on the issue of covetousness, greed. This is the other matter that surely is always in the air we breathe in this day and age. It says in verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So the pursuit or the insatiable desire for more and more and more should not be something that characterizes believers. Covetousness is wanting what you don't have for satisfaction. If I have that, I will be happier. And so I go after that, and my focus becomes that. It becomes idolatry. This is why I think we see Paul mention this alongside sexual immorality so often. It's this desire to have something more so I'm satisfied. And in this case, you might think in terms of material things. Covetousness is looking at belongings of others and longing for them. They have a lake house, I should have a lake house. They got a new car, I need to get a new car. Hey, I need to build my retirement to this point because this is what I'm supposed to do. Now, I'm not saying any of it is bad on its own. I think you know what I mean. But when that becomes your, the thing that's dictating the way you spend all your time and your energies and your affections are poured out on getting more and setting yourself up for that and getting and attaining this, all stuff, by the way, when you get, when you die, gets divvied out to other people and most of it probably ends up over at Goodwill. Greed's about the heart. It's about desiring something more than God. In a materialistic culture, greed is what is breathed in the air, and we sense it all around us. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives a young pastor some very, very important counsel. He said, with godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And this helps to regulate how we covet or become greedy. What does a man profit if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul, Jesus says. I think it might be something like this when Paul mentions these two things together, sexual immorality and covetousness, and they do overlap a bit. But I think when you're younger, typically speaking, when you're younger, the thing that probably approaches you more is the issue of sexual immorality. That will be where the temptation might lie in sensuality. Um, and as you get older, it's not that that necessarily goes away, but it sometimes is replaced with, with covetousness or greed or the desire to accumulate more. And so it's like every spectrum, of, wherever you are on the spectrum of your life, you're going to have something that's going to really want to take God's place in your life. And that's, that's the point. And Paul exhorts us to shine the light of Christ on the areas of sex and stuff. Put on Thanksgiving, he says. Thanksgiving. Great season to think about this. When we stop to give thanks, God goes back to his right place. When we're not thankful, when we're seeking after things that we think will satisfy, we're saying God doesn't satisfy. But being, pausing to be thankful, if you just take a second, you're going to start having a lineup of things that you can thank God for. And you'll become more and more about worshiping him for what he's done. So thankfulness, putting on thankfulness after you put off sexual immorality and covetousness, back to that metaphor, is 
a, a surefire way to combat those other things. Verse 5 brings us into what I would like us to consider in this last point. Shine the light of Christ on what happens if we don't divert from this path. If we keep down the path of sexual morality and covetousness, where does it lead? What does it do to the one who's beholden to it? Look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. The passage is speaking about those given over. They're now identified by these things. It's not speaking of struggling with them, as I have mentioned multiple times. Christians can fall into any sin, but they'll be miserable in it and they'll struggle against it. If you're given to something with no guilt, no struggle, instead, forget it, I'm doing this, this is how it is, I'm okay, that's who's being referred to here. John Stott does a great pastoral job on this section of his commentary. He said, it should not be understood as teaching that even a single immoral thought, word, or deed is enough to disqualify us from heaven. Otherwise, he rightly notes, which of us would ever qualify for admission? No, for those who fall into such sins through weakness, but afterwards repent in shame and humility, there is forgiveness. The immoral or impure envisaged here is the one who has given himself or herself up without shame or penitence to this way of life. They're defined by their sin, and they're allowing themselves to be defined that way. They'll just say, that's who I am. Let no one, verse 6, deceive you with empty words. This is where we have to be on guard for the message that will come to you from a dark world. The dark world filled with people who are floundering around in the same things will want to justify their actions, and they'll say, the more of us that are doing this or thinking this way prove that it's okay. And so they'll speak empty words to people who say, you know, I don't feel right about what I'm doing. Well, don't feel bad. It's okay. It's the way we are. It's just natural. It's the way it is. Verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The people who are in darkness, the sons of disobedience, the wrath of God is being stored up against them because they are given over to these things. So don't listen to people, especially Christians now, don't listen to people who are experts on these areas, whose manuals change every couple months about what's a disorder, what's a, what's a misbehavior, what's normal, what's this or what's that. It changes every months, years different from now than it was five years ago, whatever their explanations are. All sorts of empty, baseless words about these areas of sex and stuff. Verse 7, therefore, because they're attached to God's wrath now with this commitment or this identity, therefore, do not become partners with them. They're empty talkers. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is the key verse of the whole passage. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now I want to make mention, I love the ESV. I think it's the best English translation right now. It's the one I like the most to use. But there is a participle, and you language experts will know that it's best to translate a participle with just an ing on the, on the word. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The participle for discern here, it should be discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. That's just a straightforward translation. So believers who have the light of Christ are walking their life 
always discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, I don't mean you know it on the spot because we don't all have that immediate wisdom, but we have God's Word and we apply it. So we're always aiming to discern what is God's will. What is what God says is true? What is pleasing to the Lord? Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The main way we expose them is by following what God has called us to do, by walking in Christ. The exposure happens simply by you being the light, exemplifying God's saving grace in your life, his sustaining grace, his sanctifying grace. You're not perfected, but you're living in humility and repentance about these things. We talk openly and honestly about them. We don't hide them. We are asking for God to constantly help us in these areas. And as the watching world sees that, um, it will at least, by God's grace, show light. And it will shed light on the ways of error or sin that are celebrated. Wait, these people are saying it's wrong, and they're doing their best by God's aid to live according to his word. That exposes darkness just by example. But there is truth to the fact that it just needs to be declared. It has to be expressed and explained. We can't be scared of what might happen to us for saying what God's word says. Sometimes we're shy because we're in sin, and so we don't like to speak about stuff that we know we're guilty of too. Well, here's the news. We're guilty of everything that's in here, so we can get over that much. What we need to do is repent of that and ask God to forgive us for this. Lord, help us with this. We don't want this to define us. Please make us to show your son. We can't show him. You have to show him through what you do in changing us. That's our demeanor. That's how we walk through this life. And that will expose deeds of darkness as we open ourselves, if you will, to God's light shining on our own lives and then by our families, by the whole of our community, and then opportunity to express this in a way that the larger world hears. I know a lot of it will get rejected, but many people, as God appoints, will perk up and listen and want to know what are we saying about this message of Christ and what he does. Because most people are miserable in this world. You think that they're having fun because they're going and pursuing these areas, sexually or materially, but really they keep finding dissatisfaction. I promise that's true. And so God often will bring the message of the gospel to people when they're most miserable, and the ones that look happiest might actually be most miserable in these areas especially. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. This is a verse that hints at the idea of sometimes, you know, maybe they're having more fun than us, you might think. Maybe we're really missing out on something. You know, we're giving up some things here. And, and Paul's saying, don't think like that. Don't think that. It's shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, and here he quotes a bit from Isaiah, a bit from a psalm. It's probably a, an early song they sang in the church. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a bit of a motivation to walk in the light that Christ gives us. Go from your place of death, sleep, to your place of light, and walk in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we cannot trust our senses in the dark, just like I used in the illustration at the beginning. Just don't trust them. We have to have light to see what's what. Our senses, our feelings, they can deceive us badly. A few years ago, when I took a hunter safety course here in Kansas, it's been several years now, uh, I heard of a story told by the person teaching it, a true story. It happened in Missouri. There was a father and a son, and they were going hunting turkeys in the spring. So they went before sunup. It was dark. They parked at the end of a secluded road, and they split up for the morning hunt. 
It was before daylight. The father went one way and the son went another way. They had a huge property that they could hunt. The father started walking and could hear turkeys gobbling in trees. And the way you go hunt those is you, in the dark, before they come down off their roost, find, get as close as you can so when it's light you're sitting there waiting. That's the whole idea. He did just that. Walked a few hundred ways, yards away in the woods following this gobbling. Sat down at a tree. It was dark. He just listened and listened to the sound. He chose a tree uh, and waited, just leaned up against it. And while it was still pretty dark, he saw some movement just 30 yards away in front of him, in the dark, but it was starting to get a little bit light. He knew it had to be a turkey. He was positive. It must have come off its roost early, and they're typically very quiet at that time because predators are around when it's dark. He thought that he could make out that it went behind a bush. It wasn't very light yet, but he was sure of what he was seeing. He trusted his senses in the dark. His senses were confirmed when he could hear the turkey making soft yelping noises from over the other side of the bush. Though he couldn't see clearly, and the turkey was behind the bush, he was sure that his hunt was going to be successful as soon as legal, the legal hour started, the clock ticked, and he can shoot. Just as there was a little light and legal to shoot, he took aim at the bush where he could see some light movement and can hear some turkey yelp still coming, and he blasted. After the shot, he saw his, fun, his son fall to the left, badly wounded, with the turkey call still in his mouth. We cannot trust our senses in the dark. We must shine the light of Christ on everything. Just because we think it's okay or someone's telling it's okay, we have to shine the light of Christ on it. It says in verse 8, For at one time you were, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, you have said to us that we are a chosen race.